the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Welcome everybody to the May installment of Beer with the Blue Bubble Space Institute of Science. This podcast highlights the science, thoughts, and philosophies of those involved with our institute. My name is Sanjay Som, and I'm here with a bunch of people, but including Grasshopper and our speaker, Mr. Zach Adam. Zach will be talking to us about sex in very ancient times, which is very exciting. To start things off, uh, Grasshopper will s introduce us with the beverage of the month, but please obey your local laws with regards to beverage consumption. Grasshopper, all to you. Thank you, Sanjoy. Um, today I wanted to introduce a, a local beverage uh, by our uh, local brewery here in Gainesville called Swamphead. Uh, local brewmaster Luke Kemper has an awesome selection. However, uh, they haven't started bottling yet, so today I'm going to instead uh, go to my favorite beer, uh, Lion Stout from Sri Lanka. It's um, won five international gold awards. It's brewed in Sri Lanka by Salon Limited Breweries and has an alcohol content of about 8%. So uh, let me pop this open here. Ah, that's a tasty brew. Uh, it smells uh, a little sweet and bitter, has uh, coffee and chocolate notes to it. Uh, the color is pretty uh, pretty dark, has a significant white head, and uh, it's it's really black in, in color, but um, it has an amazing caramel chocolate taste to it. And uh, let's moving on to introducing our speaker. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Zach Adam. Zach has an extensive educational background with dual bachelor degrees of sciences from the University of Washington in aeronautics and astronautics engineering, as well as a bachelor's in earth and space sciences. He also has a master's in aeronautics and astronautics engineering. Currently, he's pursuing a PhD at Montana State University, where he's assessing the microfossil preservation potential of the intracratonic rift sedimentary deposits of the Belt Supergroup in Montana and U.S. Zach has achieved many honors, including the prestigious National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship, uh, the Teachers Without Borders Emergency Education Program, where he's a fellow. He also is a fellow of the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts, the NIAC. Um, Zach has also traveled extensively and has worked in remote field sites, uh, including uh, uh, Montana, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, the circum circumpolar Canada and Alaska, Turkey, India, and Equatorial Pacific Ocean. Zach also has a private pilot certificate. Uh, Zach's currently also working on the Parsequake uh, project. It's an earthquake education project. Let's see with that. I, I, I think we should, and he's done a lot of volunteer work also. And with that, I'd like to uh, pass it on to Zach. Well, thanks, Grasshopper. Um, hello, everyone. Um, that was that was a big rundown of a lot of stuff. I, I'm kind of a uh, kind of embarrassed, but um, that was a. I, I want to really thank Grasshopper for his very very sensual description of that beer, um, the local beer that he's he's trying out, and uh, maybe it's a, a good setting to try to describe um, and a good introduction for describing what we're going to talk about today, which is a very sensual kind of topic, I suppose. Sensual, maybe, if you're a lonely eukaryote out there. Single-celled, of course, because this is a long time ago. Keep in mind, we're talking about 1.4 billion years ago. 1.4 billion years ago. Now, life back then wasn't like what it is today. 
no big cities, no cars around that we know of. But maybe, maybe if you can imagine a metropolitan setting with microbes, microbes looking at each other, wondering what they are, and wondering where things are going to be, but not imagining that it would become a world full of creatures who are individually more complex than, than their entire community is. And kind of getting back and trying to understand what was going on at the time with organisms that were starting to become complex and organisms that had the potential to become complex and facing an uncertain environment where uh, things are pretty stable for a long time and then uh, every once in a while subject to a massive kind of global upheaval of the environmental order of things. Um, it's really not clear what's going to happen um, back at this point in time. And so part of the studies that I'm doing is to look at rocks from this point in time and to try to figure out, okay, what happened? What was this process of going from simple life, like simple prokaryotic life, so like bacteria and archaea, basically single-celled, pretty, pretty diversified in terms of metabolism, but not diversified in terms of morphology and function. How do we go from life that's something like that to something where we have these incredibly complex creatures. I mean, if you think about the human body, for example, almost every, every single cell that you can think of that we kind of compartmentalize when we talk about our body parts and about what we do, almost every cell has like a different function. Um, you can think about your fingernails. Like those are, that's a material that was produced by cells with a completely different function from, say, the cells that you find in your heart, and which, again, is completely different from the cells that you find uh, in your bloodstream or in your eyes or in your brain or in your bones, uh, in your muscles. Incredibly, incredibly diversified functions within a single organism. And yet, when we look back at the fossil record, uh, back at this time, to try to figure out where we come from, we really don't have much in the way of information. Uh, I mean, we have pretty good guesses. Um, we can extrapolate back from what we have now using kind of genetic codes and uh, sequences and comparisons and try to say, okay, if we were going to be the same thing as a tree, then we would have had to have diversified about, you know, X number of hundreds of millions of years ago. Um, but that really doesn't fill in exactly how or why or what, like what the setting was for becoming diverse and for becoming complexified. So again, bringing you back, this is, this is why I'm looking at these rocks. Um, they're about 1.4 to 1.5 billion years ago. And this is, if you can imagine, just the beginning of a planet that resembles something that we see today. And before this, the only form of life, if you looked around, probably would have been something like pond scum or something, uh, something floating on the surface or near the surface of the, of the ocean photic zone. Or maybe perhaps even down uh, the microbes that are present at hydrothermal vents deep, uh, deep beneath the ocean surface. But there really wouldn't have been anything that we can relate to. I guess as Douglas Adams would say, nothing that we'd really invite around to dinner. So one way, the other way that we can do this besides comparing the sequences and e extrapolating back from what we currently know is to look at the fossil record and see what the fossil record is telling us uh, from this time so long ago. So if you look at the handout that kind of goes along with this talk, um, the Proto-Erotica handout, and I guess I'll... I'll I guess this is a good time as any to say the, the title of my talk is Proto-Erotica, 
looking for evidence of sex in 1.4 billion year old rocks and wondering uh, how common uh, how common it is to find aliens that do it too. Zach, um, just to interrupt you real quick. The, uh, sure. the, the handout is on bmsis.org slash podcast. Sorry, go ahead. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. And once you find it there, it should be in your hand or in front of your face. So, <laughs> Okay, so if you pull up the handout, um, I've just assembled a couple of images here to help guide us through our talk so that we're not completely verbally limited. And the first image that you see at the top is basically like a top top-level view of what we think the development and evolution of life, the kind of timeline and, and processes for the development and evolution of life on Earth. And I've highlighted in the kind of blue shaded box the age of the rocks that I'm kind of looking at. And you'll see that before that we have relatively simple forms. Um, that doesn't mean that they were simple in terms of what they could do, like metabolism, um, because actually single-celled organisms are very adept and very uh, able to change their metabolisms in ways that uh, other creatures can't. But it's to say that morphologically they're very simple. They, have, they tend to have a, a very short kind of lifespan with a, a rapid turnover of generations um, on the scale of, say, minutes and uh, minutes to maybe hours or if they're not dormant. And then after that blue shaded box, kind of approaching the, the timeline where you can see the little uh, shaded form of the human, we see that after this point, life really, really became complex. We had this explosion of body plan forms and ways of organizing symmetrical organizations of cells. And they're all dedicated, when you think about it as an organization, like a complex organism is actually kind of like a community of cells. And each cell has a, a highly specific function that it serves, it, it, that it employs to serve the greater whole of the organism. And if you're an economic buff, I guess you could think about, you know, the division of labor and the specialization of labor. That's really what you're doing. You're, you're enslaving your fingernail cells to make fingernails for you because you might need them to survive. And that's the contribution they make to the overall fitness of, of the organism. So the, the time period in question is in the blue shaded box. And up at the top, we've got uh, some examples of the types of cells we see around this kind of critical transition period. And let's say like before two billion years, you tend to find these fossils in the rocks that are simple, relatively simple, morphologically simple, spherical. Maybe you'll find some some tubes as well. But um, as a as a good colleague of mine uh, once described to me, it's basically sticks and balls. And there's not a lot in terms of complexity during this time. And this is actually an image of a fossil that I've I've recovered from the rocks that I work with near my house here. You see that it's kind of like a between a stick and a ball. It has sticks and balls, but they're arranged in specific ways. And I realized that this is kind of a this to all outward appearances, this is a very simple organism or a simple part of an organism. But you can kind of pick out some finer details if you kind of put on your micro paleontologist glasses and you look at this image. You're going to see something. Uh, you'll see. You'll notice fine details. Like for one, we have a very dark, big black blob on the top of this image and uh, a, a moderately thick like stem or filament coming out the back of it. And we also notice that there's a separate kind of filament or stem coming off of this, this other stem with another little ball on the side of it. Now this smaller ball is a little bit more translucent. You can actually see some of the light coming through it, whereas with the, the dark ball, it's um, very thick, um, presumably very resistant. 
to de- more resistant to decay than say the the thinner material. Um, but you can see also if you notice that the smaller vesicle, the filament on that is actually quite a bit thinner than the main filament that's coming off of the larger dark vesicle. So basically that's at the level of a technical description that you're permitted to talk about with microfossils. If you go any further than that, you're talking about your interpretation and you're talking about something that there, there could be maybe uh, three or four different explanations for why we're seeing this, the remains of this organism in this fashion and in this arrangement. But that's basically where you have to draw the line as a responsible scientist and say, this is what we see, this is the description, and then after that, you really try to build up your reputation, and then you put your reputation on the line and you say, I think it's that. And then that's the moment of truth, because that's when scientists are going to say, okay, I think that maybe you're crazy or, hey, you've got a lot of really good points there and I can't come up with any other explanation. So, But, okay, so then moving on to the next organism, we see that, for starters, I apologize for not having it exactly to scale. Um, the, the image to the right should be quite a bit bigger in comparison, maybe three or four times larger than the image area as it is. But you can, if you kind of put on your micropaleontologist lenses again and look at this organism, you can see a couple of interesting features. Uh, one, it's broken into many distinct kind of cell or vesicle compartments along its length. So it isn't just like a filament or a, a string coming off the back of, of an empty vesicle. It's actually full of individual cells along the length of it. And furthermore, you can see that the, the ends of these things are quite distinct. You have one, the, the image kind of on the left-hand side of, of this image is, looks kind of like a corn cob coming out the end which is kind of this proliferation of cells, and they're all bunched at one end for some purpose. We don't know what it is. And if you look at the bottom of the image on the right, you see that it's kind of split off into these two bunches of cells, and that it's quite distinct. There's a, you, can, you can put a, if you had to break this up into parts, you could say, okay, at the, at the least I see three distinct parts. There's kind of this line of cells that connects everything kind of like a spine down the middle, you have this big corn on the cob bunch of cells at the top of this thing, and you have this kind of splitting off branching. It looks like, for lack of a better word, uh, a couple of testicles hanging off the bottom of this line of cells. And the advantage here, uh, for, for looking at this one, we're actually at an advantage because this actually resembles something like what we see today, uh, a red algae. And we see this same pattern of diversification, and by inference, we might look at this and say, well... This corn on the cob thing at the top of the structure, which was found above the kind of depositional bed, so it's pointing upward relative to deposition, resembles morphologically the uh, like a diversification of, of sexual type cells for reproductive, serves reproductive purposes. And the cells at the bottom, which again were found attached to what appeared to be kind of like a, a more permanent substrate, these cells at the bottom appear morphologically to resemble a holdfast structure, which is like, um, if you can imagine uh, a photosynthetic organism present in some environment where there are tides and waves and water moving about, it would be, it might be to the advantage of this organism to be able to grab onto one site, attach itself, so it doesn't get blown all over the place, or it doesn't get uh, washed away from its nutrient source, or it doesn't sink below the photic zone. There are a bunch of reasons you can imagine this would be an advantageous selection for this organism. And so looking at it, we see that there are a number of, I won't go into the details, but there are a number of primary and secondary traits that say, wow, this looks like something that's around today. 
And you might start to infer, wow, okay, um, it's differentiated, it's complex, it has these features that look like sexual or reproductive organs. And in fact, this constitutes kind of the oldest current evidence of sexual reproduction. So I think this is probably a good point to kind of step back and say, well, okay, like, why, why is studying sex in so long ago so important? It really has, it has almost no bearing to anything that's going on today. It's, uh, it's economic implications are, are quite limited. So why would you even bother to waste your time? And the, the, the issue here is, I think, one, it's part cultural because, in, in a sense, these organisms, uh, which are eukaryotes, to which uh, the domain to which we, we belong as well, these, these organisms are really our oldest ancestors. This is understanding what our history is, what our heritage is, and where we come from. But in a larger picture, and in the astrobiology sense of, of the picture, um, understanding, understanding how life became complex and why life became complex on the Earth might help us to understand the likelihood or the primary drivers or, uh, or to refine our expectation for finding complex life on other planets. And in this sense, because sex is, sex is like dynamite for genetic diversity, it just blows everything up and makes so many possibilities possible in a very short period of time. If you're cloning yourself, for example, if you're an organism that clones yourself, the likelihood that your offspring will be different from you is really, really low. It's limited to like random genetic mutations that might occur during your, during your cell division process. But with sex, I mean, how many of us look exactly like our parents or behave exactly like our parents? I think there'd be differing opinions on that in terms of whether you want to be like your parents or you don't. But the fact is that with sex, it creates innumerable possibilities for the way things can become complex and the way things change. And it changes in a much shorter period of time. So understanding sex is like understanding the possibility and potential to have something completely different happen that you would not have expected on the basis of what came before. And then just to kind of bring it around, uh, looking down the sheet, there I put a couple of graphs in here basically to kind of put into context how, how little data we really have to work with to understand this issue from the fossil record. And in the, the graph to the lower left on the handout, You'll see I've also shaded in blue the area of time where the fossils, uh, as, it currently, as it's currently understood, the fossil assemblage for the rocks I'm working on is really low. Um, and there's a story behind this. There was a, uh, a really cool guy named Bob Horodisky who worked on these belt rocks for a long time. He wasn't the first. Uh, actually, the first people to really come out and characterize and realize that these rocks were really old, it really started actually with... Um, with Walcott, who was one of the pioneering guys of geology in the western U.S. and Canada, um, one of the first leaders of, I, I believe, the Smithsonian Institution and perhaps the Geological Survey. I'd have to double-check that, but uh, a figurehead in early Precambrian studies. And he would come out in here, uh, come out, he came out to Montana and to British Columbia on horseback uh, numerous times on field campaigns, and he had some very helpful assistants with him. And they would basically wander around and look at rocks and try to make sense of all this stuff. And without a clear understanding of actually how old the earth was or how things fit together in the large scheme of things, they, they didn't have that. It's pretty remarkable that they would, they would find and recognize that these are actually very, very old rocks that come from a time that when the earth looked nothing like it does today. 
But basically, when he came out, he found some of the first fossils, and it's actually from this exact same deposit, the Grayson Shale, though from a different outcrop. And he found what looked like like a toddler had walked up to the these flat portions of the rock and kind of scribbled circles or spirals with a pencil onto the surfaces of these rocks. And they looked remarkably biogenic. And he basically said, okay, I found these really old fossils out here, but we don't know what they are. They look like their life, but you know, for posterity, pay attention. Maybe there's some interesting stuff here. And uh, a long period of time elapsed. That was probably about the turn of the 20th century. And new techniques developed. We gained a greater insight as geologists and as paleobiologists about the age of the earth and how life evolves and develops over time. And basically coming up to Bob Horodisky, I know there were some fantastic, there was fantastic research done in the intervening years, but this is just kind of where the story picks up here. Bob Horodisky worked on the belt rocks for quite a long time. He identified some of the first uh, microfossils that could be isolated from these rocks by dissolving them in a really nasty acid called hydrofluoric acid. And he was finding some excellent fossil specimens, which were pretty remarkable for its time. But eventually, as we gained greater awareness and we looked around the world, we found other sites around the world that were of about the same age that had stuff that was more interesting and more complex. Basically, he was finding sticks and balls. And Bob Horodisky unfortunately passed away. And no one really picked up his work because there were so many other sites around the world where they could find interesting fossils from this time period. So they simply just kind of let it go because there's nothing really to see here, folks. Move along. And But in the intervening time, um, some techniques developed. We, we started to realize that the techniques we were using for isolating these fossils was kind of giving us a bias for the simplest organisms. And the bias was coming about because we were using methods that were like shaking the rock or breaking it or boiling the acid through the rock. And what this does is these fossils are really delicate and they can break apart very easily. Just the wrong movement of your, a slight movement of the wrist and these fossils that you're seeing in the images just completely dissolve or disintegrate. So this really cool guy, Nick Butterfield, who's currently at the University of Cambridge, really pioneered and pushed for the use of low manipulation techniques for extracting these fossils. And basically, he said, just put the damn rocks in the acid, let it fall apart on its own, and see what comes out. And there's a lot more work you have to do to sift through the junk that's left over. But at the end of the day, you end up with things that are really delicate and that would otherwise have been destroyed using these earlier techniques that were previously available. So I decided to, um, as part of my project here uh, in Bozeman, to take a look at the rocks that are nearby. Um, and they are nearby. In fact, I made a trip there two days ago um, with my thesis advisor. And we took a, a field trip out on a lovely, a lovely Monday or Tuesday afternoon and uh, basically got in our time machine, which in this case was a, a 1997 Ford Escort wagon, and went back 1.4 billion years into the past and picked up some rock samples and looked at the shapes of the rocks and tried to pick out some information and to teach each other about, about what these rocks might tell us. So basically here we are. We're in the present day and we're trying to figure out what these fossils are that we're pulling out of these rocks. And for our last series of images there, I've got in the upper left a sample with um, two blue arrows pointed to it. And then just to its lower right, I have uh, a modern day image that's taken of an organism that exists today. And basically what I'm going to try to talk about here is that we see 
the fact is that we don't know what this is, but we're the title of my talk is looking for evidence of sex, not claiming it and not saying, hey, this is it, man. We've we found that these things were doing it way, way, way back in the past. Um, but I'm just going to point out and make a case to you that these things have striking morphological similarities, and it's worth taking a closer look at to see if we can figure out uh, whether or not this implicates the existence of sex uh, so long ago in the past. So with this upper left-hand image, we see a dark, uh, round vesicle, not a lot of light going through. Um, we have some filaments that are kind of lead up into this vesicle. We have a smaller, more translucent vesicle that seems to be kind of wrapped or impressioned upon the filament that goes into the base of the dark vesicle. And you can see the dark vesicle has a blue arrow pointing to the left, and then the lighter vesicle has a blue arrow kind of pointing more or less straight up and down where it intersects that filament. And if we look to the image to the lower right, we see a similar type of organism. These are both roughly to scale. We see this great big round, this great big round ball. You can read sideways in English. It says uogonium, and uh, although it does sound kind of Greek or Latin as well. Anyway, and then you see another vesicle at its base kind of wrapped around a filament that you can see kind of punctures right through that smaller vesicle, and it says antheridium. And basically this organism, what's really fascinating is that this organism is still alive today, and it has tremendous economic impacts on, on the human species. Um, because, for example, this is a relative of the organism. It's essentially identical to the organism that caused the Irish potato famine. It's the cause of avocado rot. It's the cause of numerous types of uh, sudden oak death syndrome. It's, it's this infestation that basically uh, has found a way to survive by infesting very large, very complex organisms. But we see that the way this organism reproduces is actually by splitting into two sexual cells. They're differentiated from one another. A male, you can think of it as a male and a female. And the male vesicle in this case is the smaller vesicle. And what happens, this is actually a really interesting mode of sex. I had no idea about it until I started researching this. But basically the male vesicle grows and then the female, what, what will eventually become the female vesicle, the filament grows and actually punctures and grows right through this smaller vesicle. And as it punctures it, that's where the exchange of genetic material takes place and that's where this organism can exchange genetic material with other sexual cells. And so the resulting, the resulting kind of impregnated, if you will, egg becomes the uogonium. And this is a, a reproductive, it's kind of like a, like a zygote or something. This is something where the genetic material has been exchanged. And it is a product of the genetic material of two distinct differentiated cells. And after that, it can grow, it can become another filament and start to grow out from there. It can spit out these little swimming spores called zoospores. And those things can swim around in water and try to land on some other organism or to try to get away or move to a, a more nutrient-rich environment. But basically, this thing can do any number of things. I mean, imagine if, you know, if we had this similar kind of thing, it's kind of weird to think about. It would be like your mom and dad, you know, have sex and then they want to have a child. They've been planning it for a long time. Or maybe conditions are really rough and they figure reproducing is the best way to pass on the family line. So they have sex. And then at that point, you don't necessarily come out as a human. Maybe you come out as this little egg with a little flappy thing on the back. So you can swim around because maybe conditions aren't good enough for you to grow into a, a baby and a child and a human at that point. 
So you become this little swimmy egg thing. Imagine something like a tadpole. And you swim around uh, until you find somewhere where you sense that you're able to become and mature as a human being. Or alternatively, you become like your parents and you just simply grow in place and become some, somewhat reflective of your parents. So this is a very interesting organism. It, it, it reproduces in a way that's similar to us in some respects and it is very different from us in some respects. And so we finally come to the last part of our talk, which is, all right, now we can wonder, if we think that sex is going on this far back in the past, we might start to wonder how common is it to find aliens that are doing it, that are having sex in the universe. And basically, we only have our, our planet as a guide for this because it's the only planet that has given rise to complex and diverse species and that are capable of sex to begin with. And that became very complex and eventually came to define the many of the large-scale characteristics of our biosphere. So if we use our Earth as a guide, I mean, basically what's, what's significant about what I, what I think I'm finding and what I'm looking at with these fossil specimens from the rocks here in Montana is that we're pushing back the possible age of sex by about 200 to 300 million years. To put it in perspective, you know, 300 million years ago is basically almost the entire length of time where we have animals that look like something like us with bones and muscles and, and that walk around on land and things like that. It's, it's a, a, a large, large piece of time. But we're start, you, know, you can start to ask yourself, okay, so we have the elements, uh, it's possible that we may have the elements of organisms in place for the last 1.4 to 1.5 billion years, organisms that had the potential to become complex. Now, what actually transpired to allow those organisms to become complex is, a, is another question, but there are some competing theories. One is that oxygen was really the big driver for this, that you had these cyanobacteria that are basically taking in sunlight and carbon dioxide and spitting out you know, sugars, hydrocarbons, and oxygen, and that this oxygen built up as a waste product and that this was a very energetic waste product that eventually eukaryotes came to utilize in order to, in order to metabolize and to use this as an energy source. And it's only with this tremendous availability of energy around that you can become complex. You can afford to make these seemingly superfluous investments into things like hair and fingernail cells and teeth that as a small organism just trying to scrape by on the ambient energy available, available in the environment, you just don't have access to it. Um, another theory is that maybe it isn't so much oxygen limited as it is genetic. You know, maybe we just needed to have this mechanism for becoming diverse and exploring the possibilities of what it's like to become diverse and to survive on the planet. Maybe that's what Maybe that was the big kind of bottleneck for seeing complex life develop. And what's significant about this is that if you look back up to our original plot, we'll go back up to the top of the handout sheet, you see that to the best of our knowledge, we think life has been around. We have pretty good evidence for life being around for at least 3 to 3.5 billion years. This is a, a pretty, it's a generally accepted viewpoint and interpretation of the existing fossil record. So if we had sex by one, not we, like <laughs> us, but if we as life on this planet had, w w was having sex by 1.4, 1.5 billion years ago, you're, you're talking about the implications of having 
the potential for complex life existing for roughly half of the time of the planet, which is a, an incredible span of time. And in this viewpoint, you can begin to argue that, you know, maybe it was just a matter of time. Maybe this is inevitable. Maybe with, with the, the potential for complex life to exist over such a large span of time, maybe it was only a matter of time before we found the right mix of, of genetic material that enabled us to meet other organisms and foolishly or prudently or intelligently exchange our genetic material with these other organisms and to roll the genetic dice and see how we might bend and diversify and become some very interesting creatures that we, we get to interact with on a daily basis. Things like trees and deer and fish and other human beings and any, anything you can imagine in your daily life that's complex and, and is still around. So in a nutshell, what I'm doing is I'm going to look at these rocks. Uh, I'm looking at these rocks that are from western Montana. They're about 1.4 to 1.5 billion years old. We're finding fossils in these rocks that we don't find in, all of the, in, in many other rock deposits of similar age around the world. So it's interesting to look at from that point of view because what, what else might it, might it possess? What other fossils might they possess that can tell us about this time period? And another big advantage of this, uh, of working with these rocks is that these rocks are nearby um, for us here, at least in North America. Um, the other rocks that are of similar age are in very, very remote places, um, places like Siberia or Western Australia, places where if you're talking about going there, if you're not, if you don't happen to be in that area specializing in this field, you really have to uh, plan it out. You have to get quite a bit of money and you have to hope that when you collect your samples and you bring it back to your lab, you have something to look at. What the proximity of these rocks enables for us, for me anyway, here in North America and for us in general, for scientists here in North America and, and Europe, is that these rocks can be studied in an iterative fashion. So if I find an interesting sample at one particular location, I mean, if it's halfway around the world, I basically just have to take it as a being a fluke. I, if I can't find more than one, it might be contamination. It might be some poorly preserved uh, or smushed together organism from a bunch of other organisms. It's difficult to interpret it. But if I find something interesting and I can go back and resample that specific site numerous times and find, say, 10 of them or 20 of them, I mean, I can build a much stronger case that, yes, this is actually an artifact from this time period. And so my work for the next couple of years will be to continue developing this, this uh, very interesting resource in Montana and to make this resource available for those that wish to study how life became complex on our planet and how we might understand our heritage as, as morphologically complex organisms. And I think with that, I, I'm, I, I'm open to questions if anyone listening in has, has any. Wow, thank you, Zach. That was that was awesome. What a wonderful story. Um, so I guess I, I, I guess I can start with the, the question, and everybody else feel free to to chime in as well. Um, is there any uh, concerns regarding contamination? Yeah, that's a a constant concern. No matter where you go or what you do with with organisms of this size. So, um, and you can kind of see it in the 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 images to the upper right in the handout. But basically. These things are not very big. You're talking about fractions of a millimeter in size. And I mean, when we sneeze, we have little bits of booger and flotsam and jetsam and phlegm and 
dust and everything that comes out that's way bigger than like ten hundreds of times bigger than this. So yes, contamination is a big concern. We've got a couple of ways to tell that we're looking at something that's actually a fossil, though, to try to screen out and re mitigate against the possibility of contamination. One is that um, these microfossils, and you can't really see them here, but these microfossils are almost perfectly two-dimensional. They used to be these little balls or like cylinders and, and things like that, but when they fell down and were kind of, you can imagine them kind of drifting as they died or perhaps even growing actively on the, on the bottom of some lake or some beach or something. Um, they're growing in the mud, quite happy, and then they get covered over with a, a veneer of sediments. And as those sediments accumulate, they basically all get compressed and compacted as they become rocks. And as they become compacted, they become, they go from being like a, a sphere to being more or less this little round circle that's flat. So we know that if it's perfectly flat, you've got two possibilities. One, that the organism grows in a two-dimensional manner, um, maybe within cracks within, within the bedding planes, or it was present at the time of deposition and became compressed and compacted. And the other, so to rule out between those possibilities, we also see that they're a little bit darker in color. You can see it's got kind of a um, like a gray to black color for that uh, for both of these samples, the the image in the center on the top image, and then the other fossil that's just below it there with the blue arrows. And that darkness comes from when these organisms are alive. You can see basically straight through them with a microscope. But after they die, they basically get they get heated a little bit as the rocks kind of sink into the earth um, before they're exhumed. And when they get heated, they turn into they basically get like slightly burned, you know, you can think of it like that, combusted. So that darkness is actually carbon that has been slightly combusted or slightly kind of heated, um, just like when you cook food in, in the oven. So with those things, we know, okay, well, not only did this thing become flat, it experienced some thermal, uh, like a temperature change that caused it to be cooked a little bit. So if this organism got deposited, you know, uh, a couple hundred million years ago, it's possible that that could happen. But the fact is that we're finding these new fossils with fossils that are typical of this age, and they're all the same color, they're all two-dimensional, and they're all of about the same level of organization. So we can say we've got a pretty good basis for saying that this actually isn't something that, say, uh, I sneezed out of my nose or that drifted in through the ventilation system or uh, something that fell off my hamburger when I was when I was eating next to the lab, but when I, you know, I, you shouldn't be doing that. So, <laughs> uh, hey Zach, it, uh, it's Julia. I just had a quick question. If that's if that's all right, that's all right with me. Cool. Well, awesome talk. Thanks so much for that. That was really a that's something I've never really thought about so much. I hadn't either until I came here. So, <laughs> thank you though. <laughs> Yeah, so I was just curious if that the the male female egg thing that you have like in your image mm -hmm. if it's exchanging genetic material with other organisms or is it just simply recreating itself but through an exchange of its own genetic material that's been split into a male and female component. Right. Um that's an excellent question. So, um it's for these organisms, uh, I guess I'll only speak with reference to the organisms that it resembles that's currently that are currently alive today. So this is actually called Phytophthora is the genre, um, and like I said, it, it's responsible for 
avocado rot, the Irish potato famine, um, sudden oak death syndrome, like all of these things. And so, yeah, actually it does, some of the species do both um, of those things. Some of them only split their own genetic material into male and female halves and then recombine them. And others are able to split it into male and female uh, halves, if you will, and then to interact with other organisms that respond similarly. Like, let's say they put out the same type of the same type of chemicals like hormones that would bring about and instigate sex. So the samples that I've seen morphologically look like they're exchanging uh, genetic materials within themselves. Now that could mean that it could, first of all, we should always keep in mind the null hypothesis that it's things are not as they seem and that it's something completely different and that these things differentiate for reasons that we can only imagine now. But if it actually indeed was sexual reproduction, it, it, again, like in the image with the blue arrows in the center of the handout, you see that this uh, appears to have come from the same kind of primary filament uh, in that goes and they kind of branch out from it from itself. So in that sense, yes, it would be exchanging genetic material with itself. I've seen other samples from rocks of this age, but from a different formation within this group of rocks where it looks like there are filaments that are kind of like coming in from somewhere else and it's a completely different filament and it has the same thing. It just doesn't have this really dark differentiated black vesicle at the end of the filament. So that's all. It's inconclusive to say, first of all, that it's the same organism or that it is reflective of the same type of behavioral processes. But and this gets into questions of like taphonomy, which is how fossils get preserved. So we might only see, first of all, we're always only seeing a very narrow, we're seeing within a very narrow keyhole that's in a very, very large door. So we, the, all this stuff that gets screened out that we can't see might be because things don't get preserved uh, very well. Um, if it's organisms, if it's the right conditions where organisms are reproducing with other nearby organisms, that might be a completely different environmental setting than one in which the organism is reproducing essentially from a one filament uh, as it appears to be in this in this central image. So, so yeah, the long story and the short story of it is um, the samples that are of the highest fidelity that have the preservation of the most morphological features all appear to be coming from the same filament and and that the organisms today reproduce in both manner, both by in both manners, both by splitting into male and female halves from a single filament and then and then um, having sex or from recombining with differentiated sexual vesicles of other nearby but related organisms. Thanks, Zach. Don't be shy. It's really, really old sex and no one is going to post any nasty images of Phytophthora on, on the web. So. All right, Zach, I've got a speculative question for you as to uh, how common sex might be in aliens. Um, let's say it's really rare. What do you think that might suggest about the possibility of finding extraterrestrial life or of technological extraterrestrial life existing at all? Wow. Speculative question. My favorite question. Um, <laughs> I would say, so you're saying if it is rare, if we, if we were to somehow visit another planet and sex was rare or non-existent, what would that say about things? Or, or even if we just, you know, you continue your work and we find out maybe sex did originate fairly early on on Earth, but it was through a really unlikely coincidence of events and maybe mm. 
we think it probably doesn't happen very often, even on habitable planets. Right. Um, you know, there's a couple of different ways to answer that, and I think I'll answer it in the way, I'll, I'll answer it in the, the engineering way, the, the total nerd way, which is that we're kind of reduced to looking at the time scale of things and trying to say, okay, well, what, what do we have to work with on, based on the, 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 the prevalence of its exposure through time? I would, I would respond to that and say that it may not actually mean much because, for example, we, if it's present for quite a bit of our fossil history, a substantial fraction of that, and it didn't go away. Once it was established, it just kept going. Then, I mean, in a large scale of things, it really wouldn't matter if sex showed up, you know, 200 billion, 2 billion years ago or 2 million years ago. The fact is that once the potential exists, things get out of hand uh, relatively quickly, geologically and universally, timescale speaking. So, like, if sex originated yesterday, I mean, I think we would expect that complex life would be almost inevitable. And that's a completely speculative bonds. And so it really doesn't matter if it was two billion years ago or yesterday. The potential exists, and once it exists, it doesn't really tend to go away. But those are really deep. We going back and forth about that. I realized that that's um, that could you could interpret the available data in many different ways. I would say that if you find that sex exists anywhere under any conditions, you would basically expect that complexification and diversification are not that far behind. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Sarah, did you have a quick question? And Zach, a quick it answer? Was more, I have a more of a comment, um, but I'd, I'd like to hear Zach's thoughts on it. Um, so I guess like the process of recombination itself is supposed to be very old. So I've read a lot of papers suggesting that, quote, unquote, sex might be older than life in some sense because recombination Whoa. was really important to early evolution in general. Um, so when you say like sex is, you know, only 1.4 billion years old, is that more just like program sex and, and recombination in general is, is much older or? Yeah. I mean, that's a, hmm. Um, it's, I would say I would define sex here as being specifically between eukaryotes with differentiated vesicles with the, that are produced for the expressed purpose of genetic recombination within an, within an across species. Hmm. But yeah, I, uh, hmm. <laughs> you stumped me on that one. Um, I would say, I, I would I say, like yeah. I like sex before life personally, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, uh, you're probably not alone. Um, <laughs> um, I think um, I think I think what this really does is it shines a light into um, how many like exactly how how life becomes um, the 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 innumerable different ways that we can exchange genetic information with the creatures that are around us and whether those things are the same species or not I think we're only beginning to discover that the way of exchanging genetic information is probably uh, okay, I'll, I'll go back and I'll, I'll tie this in with Jacob's question. I'll say yeah. um, that there's, if we were to go to, a, if we were to sample some representative number of life-bearing planets, um, I would not be surprised to find that there are probably similarly uh, innumerable ways of exchanging genetic information at a at a complex species level or at a simple species kind of grade of organization, and that we we might find that sex, as we define it, is an incredibly narrow 
and um, prudent definition of what sex is. Like, oh, it's only it's only when eukaryotes have cells that are specifically for that purpose that it's sex. And sex cannot be between a non-differentiated cell and another non-differentiated cell. Like, it's of defined course. as this and that, you know, like, to use our kind of, <laughs> kind of speak to what our current situation is right now. Um, so in the current kind of current political debates, it can be framed in that language. And we, we might find that we're actually dealing and thinking about sex in a very conservative way and that there might be methods of exchanging genetic information that are far beyond our, the, the kind of template that we have to work with with life on Earth. Um, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. That's a really, that's a really cool way to think about it, though. Well, on that uh, very deep note, uh, we're getting <laughs> out of time. But uh, I wanted to thank you again, Zach, for a very interesting and provocative talk. Thank you, Grasshopper, for the very delicious beers. And thank all of you for your awesome questions. And listeners, please tune with us next month for another edition of Beer with the Global Space Institute of Science. So thank you so much, and see you next month. Bye-bye. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.